Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. Two pieces, one guest conductor, Michael Francis, back in town to lead your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra this week, and he joins me to chat about what's to come. Welcome back, Michael. Pleasure to be back. Thank you, Julia. It's so nice to have you here. So it's been almost exactly five years. What's new? What's new? I had a kid, uh, I suppose. I've been enjoying my life in Florida um, and just usual conducting and getting to getting. Well, my job is so wonderful because I get to perform some of the greatest music in the world. And as a conductor, I get to unite people. And in Florida, which is obviously, you can imagine, quite a split audience down the middle politically. I, we don't get we don't talk about those things. We just bring people together and talk about the human condition through the eyes and ears of the world's greatest music. So. Do you really enjoy, I gather, you really enjoy being a music director? How do you go about putting the arc of your season in Florida together? Well, I think it's something that is born out of experience, depending on each um, place you're in. So for me, it's um, we have three different cities we play every week. We play in Tampa, St. Petersburg, and Clearwater. So it's we're sort of spread out over the whole Tampa Bay. So really, you're trying to, to find a way to communicate the truths of this music to people. I don't necessarily talk about complicated harmony, but we do communicate through our pre-concert talks. I talk from the podium, and we do an Inside the Music series. We really want to make the music relevant to each person's life so they understand themselves and the lives of others around them. So that's one of our big missions is to do that. Uh, and then I'm just choosing pieces that I know will, will um, of course, delight people. Then I choose pieces which will surprise them. We do a lot of commissions. And, and every piece on every program has to be connected or related. That's the thing. So there's always some meta-narrative, either within the program or over the whole season. So the last time you were here, two pieces one was Walton and one was Holst. This time around, it's two pieces. One is Walton, I'm sensing a theme, <laughs> and one is Rachmaninoff. But I thought maybe, if you don't mind, we'll start with the Rachmaninoff. I know mm-hmm. our soloist's plane couldn't get in in time for him to be here. But you and I can talk about the Rachmaninoff, the piano concerto number three. So I ask you straight out, maestro, what is that line between romantic and slushy? Because this is... Uh, concerto that can go dreadfully wrong in many ways. So how do you keep it on track? Well, I think, first of all, you have to listen to his recordings. And Rachmaninoff's recordings, although there's a fluidity to it, there's often a simplicity. And the opening of this piece, I mean, unlike the great bell tolls of the second or the the fiery fanfares of the fourth and the power of the first, the beginning of this concerto is very simple. It's like um, it feels more like a Gregorian chant with the melody. In fact, I do think it is actually connected to some uh, a Russian um, song or ecclesiastical song, I, f- I forget the name of it. So you have to find that balance of the simplicity. You have to find the, 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 re- the, the recognition of that continual fear of death that he had that permeated everything until the symphonic dances, when he finally expunged or exorcised his ghosts in that piece with the death of the Deaziri. So if you recognize those things alongside that wonderful, glorious, free romanticism that came from his music, then things are in balance. Um, and you have to be respectful to his markings. And, and he was a pianist who had great freedom, but he was also within the confines of his very clear structure. So it's the, like all great music making, is that balance of heart and intellect. What makes this piece difficult for pianists? The number of notes. <laughs> Just the sheer number of notes within any second is 
incredible. And of course, we know Rachmaninoff could reach a 12th comfortably, hit enormous hands, and he was maybe the greatest pianist of the 20th century. So there's the technical demands, but on top of that, you've got these huge things with six or seven lines going at once, and you have to then find a way to make it lyrical uh, and, of course, keep to that long structure. And the, the scale is 45 minutes. I mean, and often, actually, I think it's underestimated how much the, the pianist in this piece um, has a complemental role to the orchestra. And that's very important. It's, it is often real chamber music. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute because, of course, it has that beautiful adagio with that famous melody, but that melody doesn't completely belong to the pianist. No, the first minute or so is all orchestra, and it's unusual he called it intermezzo. That's an unusual title because it seems far more gargantuan than just a sh- uh, mere um, sort of amuse-bouche or a little side thing or sorbet between meals. It's something far bigger um, but so much of it is to do with the lush orchestration at the beginning and that subtle writing in which he brings in the different voices until we arrive at the piano and when the piano begins to get to that theme it's in bits and pieces it takes a while for him to get it all put together it's sort of like Beethoven's ninth it takes a while for him to really get us to the ode to joy we get hints we get allegations and then it sort of drops into our lap Yes, it's almost like variations before the theme. Uh, And that is very much the structure of this, this idea of these things developing and looking at this wonderful notion, this wonderful melody through the the prism of many different lenses. Uh, And um, yes, you're absolutely right. And and the variety that he brings to the writing in that movement is is just exquisite. I think because of this piece is such a romantic war horse, to use such a terrible name for it, it is um, often patronized, but actually as a piece of music is one of tremendous delicacy. Uh, so much of this is rather refined, gentle music. It's not all big power. Of course, the big ending is, is huge. Um, but I would say the vast majority of this piece is pretty delicate. I agree. And, and, and it begins with that opening. That opening is so gentle, so sweet, uh, a little mysterious. Um, and then trills. There are these light beautiful trills all over the place on this where he just stops like birds singing and then moves on i don't I, I always feel like if somebody's hitting this hard they're doing it wrong you're right there's something um like a, a, a mendelssohn there's a sort of a gossamer skeletal quality to it uh, and then and there's always that sort of searching slightly restless thing that you get with rachmaninoff but even when he lands in a moment he's almost embarrassed to sit there too long and he moves forth and and I think with this, it is that is that combination of trying to find simplicity, but the strings da 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 underneath, just nudging you along, not letting you settle. So, this was the first piece. I assume the second piece on the program, um, which also doesn't let us settle, I might add, is your your pick, the Walton. Yes, I mean, so when I spoke with uh, Dick Decker, who was um, here for many years at the Rochester as the artistic uh, director. Um, we were sort of thinking about what pieces would work, and I suggested the Walton, and forgetting actually when I spoke about it that I did Walton beforehand. And in fact, I don't get to conduct Walton very often, although I do love to bring English music, of course. We live to serve here. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and but this piece is something I've done it before, and I just think it has such a power, such a strength. And both are young men's music; they're both written when they're in their thirties. And both looking at sort of the romantic thing, but in very, very different ways. And I think the Walton is, in many ways, the great British symphony. If you if you look at the... the what's interesting is when you ask the English composers of the 1920s, 
they they would say, ask him who their favorite composer was. It'd be very different to what the Germans would say. The Germans would have said Richard Strauss, and and possibly the Europeans may have said Stravinsky. For the English, they would have always said Sibelius. He was an absolute hero amongst the English and British composers because of his capacity to write long-scale music, this incredible symphonic form, the, the reinvention of, 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 of form and structure. But above all, this sense of great, huge, epic harmonic vistas that carry on forever and ever. So Walton, just out of the blue, just I mean, he was, of course, he wrote Facade with the Sitwells, and then you get this piece, and it burns with this unbelievable intensity. Uh, and it's just... And the, the first movement is one of kind of searing rage, but epic romance. And you only get the final um, resolve or resolution at the very end of this 12 or 13 minute movement. And these huge long um, sort of harmonic pedals that carry on, but incredibly complicated orchestration. But it's also so astonishingly and cathartically powerful. And the reason being is that you sense you sense something strange going on, something we all know, which is, of course, rejection. And at the time, he was in a passionate and dangerous love affair with the Baroness Emma Dernberg. And this piece, it says, to the Baroness Emma Dernberg, not for, it says to. It's almost like a statement. And the first three movements are really him dealing with the pain of that breaking up. And the first movement, when you hear it through this, this, this torture, this, this pain within him, it's it's so relevant because we've all experienced the rejection of love or we've seen it and understand it. And the second movement, he's called it Presto con Malizia, Presto with Malice. And really, it's like an argument. It's this argument that flies back and forth and people repeating the same lines because, of course, when you're in an argument, you want to win your point. And there's this great flourish at the end and it's a, it's a combination of virtuosic, vital vitriol is what I would describe it. But it's it's brilliant fun. And then the third movement, Andante con Malencona, which is Conia, which is, of course, melancholy, and it's him recognizing what was lost through the the ending of this relationship. And it's 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 almost Shostakovich quality to it. Um, there's a, a lost, forlorn quality, but then there's this glorious and honest representation of what the heart felt at that moment. Where you just feel like you're in a great chasm that is swallowing you up before it resolves, sort of quixotically at the end. But then the strangest thing happens. We have these three. St- just brilliant pieces of of music this this incredible thread and then the fourth movement is incongruous it, it seems to be completely disconnected now does this do you think is this a result of the fact that he had writer's block and and he didn't add the fourth movement for a while well the story was is that someone said no willie got a new girlfriend so that was it. So <laughs> he basically, between the between the third and the fourth, he met Alice Wimborne, who was a society lady, 22 years older than himself, and uh, he was happily in love again. And he seems to have this remarkable ability to bounce back from agonizing self-doubt and pain and rejection to, okay, all is well with the world, and now I write a big Hollywood ending. Never mind, then. Yeah, exactly. Next, please. I mean, it's really, it's really, it's so different to the rest. And he also knew that the, the, the sheer intensity of the first three movements which in, by no means is it modern music it has of course um, some modern harmonies but it's absolutely recognizable you know where you are harmonically in it it's not it's not difficult music to listen to in that sense but the the fourth he, he said he wrote it for the mob uh, he wrote it for everyone to enjoy and it's you can put it this way you can certainly tell that john williams was a fan of walton you can even hear like bits and pieces of his marches. Yes, the coronation ode, absolutely. There's a lot of this. And in the ending, it's 
there's this a bit like Sibelius's Fifth Symphony, these long, powerful bam, big, huge chords. And I think there was a story Raymond Lepart tells when he was conducting it in Indianapolis or somewhere. Maybe it was some he, yeah, and he and he did. He's got these chords, and they got to bang, bravo, bang, bravo. Then it carries on. Then suddenly, sorry. <laughs> By the end, the orchestra couldn't play. And I loved, and the LSO had a similar experience with Sibelius Five once in Athens, where someone started shouting out, and by the end, the orchestra were in hysterics. <laughs> yeah, that, there was um, actually a, a who was it that did it for April Fools? An interview with the guy, the Bravo guy, and uh, I think the the idea being that there is one guy who travels yeah. around the world and yells Bravo and shows up on everybody's recording. <laughs> I, I I listened to this for the very first time from beginning to end of, on Monday, and there were two things that really struck me. Um, one was the beginning and one was the end, and they struck me for the same reason. They, they just smelled of Sibelius. They, yeah. they, the open has that Sibelius horn thing going, and the, the close has that Sibelius fifth thing going. Mm, absolutely. And I think he was so loved in the UK and so admired. Of course, he'd pretty much stopped composition by this point. He was flirting with the Eighth Symphony, you know, that he would write, but he didn't do it. And 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 that that sense of respect for the symphony. I mean, Vaughan Williams dedicated so much of his music to Sibelius, uh, and Walton the same. And so, you're absolutely correct. There is a tremendous uh, empathy. Maybe it's that sort of northern, cold, isolated country thing that the Brits have and that the Finns have as well. He was a funny man. He was isolated. He never had students. Mm. He never left behind acolytes or a school. Um, he seemed to work within his own musical silo. He did, and, and he had just such creativity. And But his creativity, I mean, he's like a sculptor. He's not a painter because he had the sense of form that was always so perfect. So in, in for example, the symphony, from the very first note you're building up to the swan theme all the way through and and it's the same in the Walton I mean that final payoff in the end of the first movement it begins at the very first timpani rumble and it goes right through, and you feel that you are caught in this magnetic pull beyond your control like I mean dragged into space and you can't stop it until this moment and this moment when it comes so in London, the, the, where I used to play, the London Symphony Orchestra has this tradition of, in the first rehearsal, especially with new conductors, when it gets to the big climax, everyone just shouts and cheers. Way! It could be Mahler, it could be Tchaikovsky, anything. And we all know where they are. But the one in the Walton, I still want to do that when I'm conducting. Because that moment which you just feel at last he resolves you back into B-flat, it is so powerful a physiological effect upon you that you just you just feel this joy and release like you've been you had one foot just tied behind you and now you can run it's an amazing effect and of course something that could only happen in live music when you hear and watch the kinesthetic power of musicians playing together and the walton the walton symphony was a, a hit from like the gecko people went nuts on this thing they recognized i think it also captured the atmosphere in the 1930s of course european tension i mean people knew there was trouble at mill um, and so it has that sense of awareness of its time, but equally that, that connection to each human being, that of 
fear of rejection, experience of rejection, and ultimately the uplifting nature of Ad Astra. I mean, from struggles to the stars, it's the Beethoven Five. It's from the darkness to the light. It's that it's that epic story that we know throughout literature, through poetry, through music. It is it is how do you go from pain throughout, and and that's what great art does. There's a great quote about this in the New Girl Dictionary. One man called this uh, it had orgiastic power, coruscating malice, sensuous desolation, desolation, and extroverted swagger. Oh, that's that, that perfect descriptions. Absolutely perfect descriptions. I think that's that's ideal. Is it coruscating malice? Is that what you yeah. said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a beauty. I'll bring this in. I'll yeah, give this to you. We can use it in a free show <laughs> chat together because it's a great quote. Um, the, the orchestras don't do this often. So mm. when you come in, Michael, to work with an orchestra for this piece of music that is epic, mm. um, how do you get them ready? I know the orchestra itself is, should be ready if they're pros at this but now what steps do you take to work them through your limited rehearsal time well firstly this is one of the most challenging symphonies to play it's extremely difficult i mean technically uh, and in terms of getting it together it's and and some pieces are very hard and you can't tell whether someone plays the right note or, or not but this one you can absolutely tell it's so yesterday it was we had very intense rehearsals and tonight we have the same um, just to really get it into shape. And, and of course, you have fantastic virtuosic musicians who are highly professional and prepared and uh, and very committed. And I think the musicians are enjoying the, the piece and, of course, they're enjoying the challenge. I mean, rarely have do you meet a, a great symphony that hasn't been played. I mean, I think it has been played here before. I'm sure Christopher Seaman must have done it, but no, certainly not in the last 15 years. So for the majority of the orchestra now, it's brand new. And you can see that they are just sort of slightly spellbound by the music but equally just white in the white knuckle ride of just putting this thing together i mean the the first and second movements are as demanding as anything so uh do you remember the first time you conducted this sure i was in i did it in finland talking of sibelius okay yeah, and you know they understood it they got it straight away the audience and they hadn't done it before um but they they also just felt this this roller coaster ride throughout it and this white heat that comes off this piece during the pro the, during the performance it's really it's really extraordinary it's 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 so it's so i don't know how to describe it it just feels like you're walking on coals but you don't want to get off them it's like you're almost enjoying the burn it, there is an intensity to this 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 the first three movements in particular which is unlike anything else so if you had a chance to sit down with walton and talk to him about this symphony what questions would you be asking him, Michael? Why didn't you write the fourth movement before you met the new one? <laughs> I, what would have happened if you hadn't uh, met Alice Wimborne, and what was the fourth movement have been like if it was part of this original dark conception? I mean, that would have been fascinating. Um, I think I would have uh, asked him about some orchestration things. I mean, I think some of it's probably a little too complicated and a little too thick. But above all, I just would have wanted just to, to, to quiz him on, on, on how he he was so amazingly open and honest with us to share so much of him. And of course, the great composers do that. They lay themselves open. And last week I was conducting Elgar's Dream of Gerontius. And this piece in which he just, he, he laid himself bare, that sense of fear and trepidation, but hope in, in the afterlife. Uh, and that, of course, allows us then to contemplate these things in our lives. And that is what great art does. It, it, it allows you to learn 
to learn empathy. And that's why our art form is essential. People come to a concert hall, they have to turn their mobile phone off. They have to listen together. They have to engage. And if it's well communicated, they will leave changed because it will affect not just their intellect, but their physiology, their, their soul, their, their being. And you know yourself the tangible effect that music can have, sometimes uncomfortable, upon your being. And then, of course, there's moments of release. You feel it, and it's like you're, you're floating. And every art form, every culture um, has a, a form of music, a form of deity, survival, and music. Every single human being on this planet, it is the universal language um, because of that, because it, it taps into the basic part of our cortexes that just that understand emotions. And there's a recent study that was just done in one of the universities, uh, maybe in Harvard, in which they had they, they wanted to dis to explore what is is there a, is there a truth in the axiom that it is the universal language? And so they took a series of pieces from 50 different cultures, or maybe more or less. Um, and they had people from other cultures to analyze and write down what the music was. And one would be a funeral piece, one was a joyous piece, and one was a, um, a lullaby sung by a mother. But each one sounded so different, they were amazed and stunned that people from other cultures could immediately recognize what the music was around. And that's the thing. It's like we all get it. And if we had people from every culture in the world in one room listening to Walton, and I said, write down what you felt, and I had what I believe, the platonic template of it, we would all think the same, or very close. That is astonishing. I want to thank you so much for coming in. And I want to thank you for putting this on the program so that we can all hear it this week with your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra. Michael Francis, my guest today on this podcast. And uh, if you would like to know more about the Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra season, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.